Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air. Uh, my name is Victoria. I am an alcoholic and chairperson for today's meeting. Hi, we open AA meetings with the Serenity Prayer, and I invite you to join me. God, God, grant me the serenity. To accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Right, um, I'll now move on to the AA preamble. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So we're in Wellington um, and today we have the Tuesday night big book meeting um, in the room, um, which runs over in Mount Victoria at 7.30 on Tuesdays, if you're in the area and want to check it out. Um, so we're going to open the meeting today with a reading. Um, so I'll ask Rebecca to do that now. Thanks, Victoria. Um, actually, I'm going to sort of um, mush together a couple of readings. Um, uh, and they're sort of on um, spirituality in the AA program. Um, and um, uh, a really helpful basic guide to um, uh, the sort of approach to spirituality in the program and how it doesn't have to be that complicated. Oh, yeah. um, so I've got this little extract. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as a feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. So it was with us. Um, And then there's a little reading on the spiritual experience, which is frequently referred to in um, AA literature. Uh, The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences 
must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before they are themselves. He finally realises that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspecting inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. Uh, And there's a quote from Herbert Spencer, uh, which goes, There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, And now I will just ask Rebecca to open up the sharing today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Victoria. Um, Yeah, I really love that reading because um, uh, the sort of concept, the the idea of a spiritual life or, um, you know, the sort of spiritual aspect of the AA program is pretty confronting to many people. Um, And it was confronting to me when I um, first came into the rooms of AA, um, like, um, I don't know, like quite a few people, um, uh, I had been raised in a, um, uh, you know, family with with, um, a church-going family with some faith. There's a lot lot of Catholics uh, or Reformed Catholics in, um, (laughs) in AA for some reason. Um, uh, I, I don't know why, but um, uh, I had grown up with quite a punitive concept of God and um, not much of a um, not much of a faith, to be honest. Uh, I kind of envied people who did have faith. I thought it looked like it probably made life easier. But I couldn't bring myself to um, couldn't bring myself to to feel it. Um, yeah, which is an interesting experience. Um, when I started drinking, and um, you know, uh, 
in a lot of ways. I think that my drinking was was um, a symptom of, or, or the way that I tried to deal with that kind of um, feeling of um, not rightness. It was my way of trying to write things and to, you know, maybe it was my way of searching for um, for God or the spiritual plane or to, you know, get off get off my um, uh, little patch of reality or something. Um, I think because I had grown up with quite a um, punitive God, I um, I was very quick to uh, I was very quick to um, view the chaos and difficulties and um, mess that was going on in my life as um, moral failure and. Uh, you know, that um, sort of just formed a part of a cycle. Uh, the more I felt like a failure and that um, any uh, any religious God out there would not be happy with me, would reject me, the worse I felt um, and uh, the more I drank. And, um, you know, this, this sort of cycle that... Um, keeps you in a pit of, of despair. Uh, the funny thing is that, um, you know, in uh, a lot of ways I lived this real double life and um, and I, uh, I attended church. Um, uh, not, that I, not that I believed in it, um, but I, you know, I sang in the, uh, sang in the choir and um, and I was there every Sunday with my hangover, often enough with a black eye. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, and um, it's kind of uh, it's kind of hard to describe this uh, relationship I had with um, uh, with a religion that I felt rejected me, um, and. Um, at the same time, some kind of longing for a spiritual experience, and um, and I just felt uh, alienated and not good enough, um, and um, <clears throat> like I had to uh, attack because I felt on the defensive. Um, so I was, you know, not very. Um, not very keen on the idea of the spiritual component of a program of recovery uh, when I um, first came into AA and um, uh, didn't really believe in miracles or um, uh, things kind of um, having a purpose or a meaning. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, I was not someone who had a uh, blinding spiritual experience. Um, what I liked when I read these passages or heard them read for the first time was that um, uh, both of them kind of point inwards. Uh, and um, uh, it's that moment of discovery um when you realise, ah, oh, it was here all along, 
you know, I always had it, um, but I was looking in the wrong places for it. You know, um, yeah, so many things I looked for in a bottle, but they were they were actually I was carrying them inside me all along, um, and uh, you know that was quite the quite the revelation. I think um, uh, coming to understand this meant that. Um, you know, the process of sort of personal reinvention that for me constituted uh, recovery and, you know, this uh, rebuilding of my life um, meant that, uh, you know, I just, I could find all those things inside. Um, and this is what I love about about the program of AA is that um, through guided introspection um, we can examine our our values make things right and uh, build a life that is is right for us um, my spirituality can be my own it doesn't have to be anyone else's um, and uh, and it's all you know it's all there um, Today I am so glad to be sober um, and I'm so glad to have uh, some kind of faith um, that, that, makes, that makes things less frightening. You know, uh, I think that um, a life without faith is quite terrifying um, the idea that everything is my responsibility um, is uh, is just too much of a burden to to carry. So um, when I, as I slowly came to believe, um, you know, the weight of that burden was sort of slowly lifted from me. So um, it's super cool to uh, to be here and to be able to. <laughs> just talk away about um, how uh, how I feel about spirituality and God and you know there's no rights or wrongs in AA which is super cool um, that's about it for me thanks for um, uh, tuning in thanks Rebecca um, so just a reminder you're listening to the Wellington um, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air. We are broadcasting on Wellington Access Radio. That's 106.1 FM. Um, so if you or someone you know um, it relates to what's been shared today and you're living in New Zealand and you're wanting to get in touch, um, you can go to our website, alcoholicsanonymous.org.nz. Um, or there is a phone number free to call um, and there is a sober alcoholic on the end of that phone 24 hours a day and that is 0800 AA Works, 0800 229 um, You can find that and other resources on the website. Um, if you are enjoying um, this recorded podcast and you're wanting to listen to more, um, I think the best place to go is actually the Wellington Access Radio website. Um, if you look up AA on Air, it's got every single recording, you know, pretty much every month for the last couple of years. So there's um, plenty for you to listen to. Um, and now I will ask Josephine to share. 
Uh, kia ora all. My name's Josephine. I'm an alcoholic. Kia ora, Josephine. Um, yeah, lovely to be here this morning. Um, I often listen to this meeting when I'm uh, taking walks around the place. Um, and, yeah, and I, I have a lot of time for meetings on here, and particularly this one, because they, in some sense, brought me into the program. They, they enabled me um, without... Necess- you know, without needing to come into a meeting to to familiarise myself with the program before I made the um, commitment to actually physically attend a meeting, and so I really um, I have a lot of time and um, I suppose gratitude for the people who you know year in year out run these meetings and provide this service. And yeah, it's lovely to be here this morning, just partaking in a tiny element of the of the broader goal, which is to carry the message to the still-suffering alcoholic. Um, This morning I was thinking, as Rebecca was speaking, I was thinking about um, kind of where my head's been um, recently, and I don't know whether this has happened to anyone else, but with the the anniversary of 9-11, I've been thinking a lot about where I was 20 years ago, and I've gone on a kind of... I like history, I like politics, I like, um, you know, following all that stuff anyway, but I've definitely, you know, been listening to lots of um, media about it and, you know, watching whatever's on Netflix and rah 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 And it, it's kind of reminded me about, in some sense, like where where I was, you know, 20 years ago and what I was doing and, and what my life looked like at that point and what kind of turns it took after that. Um, and in some sense, that's kind of where I... That's, yeah, 20 years ago is, is kind of where I chart the beginning of my um, more problematic drinking. And the reason, yeah, I, I've just been thinking about it quite a bit. I, I, I was living in Sydney 20 years ago and um, I had a slightly kind of strange existence um, and drinking became a kind of, and, you know, this is the the case for probably many young people when they're overseas on some form of, you know, like, yeah, you know, when you're kind of in an unfamiliar place, you get to know people via alcohol and you maybe do and kind of you're up for things that maybe you weren't up for prior because that's part of the, you know, um, overall objective is, you know, to experience things. Um, but in my case, I... I was kind of I was taking greater risks than were probably you know advisable, um, and that tended to kind of I don't know for me it set off a pattern of of behaviour that I hadn't had in my teens. In my teens, my drinking looked pretty much like other people's drinking or the people I associated with, um, and that was you know, I'd kind of describe that as you know weekend drinking. Um, uh, you know, relatively regular drug taking, um, and that was, you know, that wasn't unusual. Um, but in my twenties, particularly when I was like twenty twenty one, it just it just a different switch was flicked, and it got dark quite quickly. And I had a really hard year when I was twenty one. I had a few experiences that were tough for me at the time to process. They were tough to process on my own. Um, and that combination of drinking a lot socially and then kind of feeling isolated and maybe a bit, you know, um, yeah, just in an unfamiliar place, it kind of culminated in, yeah, developing a style of drinking that then 
yeah, just kind of followed me for the next few years. And so I would, yeah, I, I would drink to, to calm down at the end of the day. I would drink to perk up um, if I had to socialise. I would drink when I was upset. I would drink when I was angry. I would drink when I was alone. I would drink um, around other people to kind of combat shyness. I would drink to, um, you know, it, it became the go-to for a whole lot of different, um, uh, you know, emotional kind of unease situations that I, you know, was struggling to, to grapple with. Um, and I didn't think any of that was unusual at the time, but I have these vivid memories of of doing things that now look so alcoholic, um, such as I had a long commute home um, and I had like kind of three or four different stop-offs. And so I had to take, you know, different forms of public transport to get home. And after <laughs> after each one, I'd like stop and take a break. So say, for instance, if I finished work at like 7pm, 8pm, I would, you know, get to Circular Quay and then I would, you know, take the ferry over to Manly and then I would stop at Manly and have like a beer there and then I would walk over here and then buy something from the supermarket and kind of drink that casually on the beach and then I would, you know, pick something. Like I'd, I'd break the journey home up into different drinking mini breaks. <laughs> and at this age I'm 21, you know, so I'm not a guy in his 40s struggling with a divorce, you know, like I'm not, I'm not your kind of what I would have thought of at the time as the like the archetypal depressed alcoholic, but fundamentally at 21, I was a depressed alcoholic, or certainly on the way to being one. Um, and yeah, so I had the, I could keep up the, you know, the normal kind of social drinking of you know a woman in her early 20s. I could, I could do all of that, but I had this kind of side hustle of a different drinking pattern and style and experience that was very much not something I wanted anyone else to be completely aware of. Um, so there was a lot of another pattern I developed early was like drinking um, in the at the back of a section, you know, like hiding kind of behind a bush. Um, <laughs> drinking in a garage was a big pastime of mine. Um, drinking under the house in the laundry Drinking uh, in the car uh, before, you know, so getting home, not necessarily drinking while driving, but stopping, just having a few drinks and then entering the house. Um, So those kind of behaviours just grew and grew and became more embedded. Um, Meanwhile, you know, life is kind of carrying on and... um, if you drink like that, you tend well. In my case, if you know, I tended to surround myself with other people who were also, you know, would drink a lot socially, and maybe um, they had their own kind of growing problems with alcohol. Um, and so I was able to kind of disguise my style of drinking by hiding it amongst other people's style of drinking who had potentially more harm um, or. Who, what I mean is, like, I had a really, really strong narrative that if if I'm not actively causing harm to others, as in if I'm not kind of lying and cheating and stealing and breaking the law and hurting people physically, then, frankly, what I do is my business. Um, 
and I was around other people who did, you know, kind of harm others in the course of their drinking. And so to me, they were the alcoholic. I was just a heavy drinker. But it became harder and harder to kind of reconcile all these parts of my life. And, you know, Rebecca spoke earlier about having kind of, yeah, we become very um, adept at, you know, different masks. Um, And by the age of 28, that's where I was. I was just all over the place. I kind of had the potential to embarrass myself professionally. I had um, the potential to kind of reach a, you know, an objective that I was really um, happy about and then destroy it. Um, all of the things that I thought were, um, yeah, I, I just, I was a, you know, ch- the the sabotage that I exercised daily in so many different areas of my life um, was, you know, making me feel awful about things. Um, and so, yeah, I was 28 when I first came into a meeting um, and, you know, if, you, if you're not used to meetings or if you haven't been around AA much, the, sometimes the readings, such as we started with this morning, can be, I don't know, a little bit confusing or like, what's the point here? Or, you know, what is this kind of getting at? It took me a while um, to just be able to listen without critiquing everything. So, you know, I would have, if I'd listened to, I came into AA six years ago and and stayed, but if I'd listened to the reading um, that we just did seven years ago, all I would have been able to hear hear was like the gendered language and just how sexist AA is and, you know, righty, righty, righty. I I would have just torn strips into the reading and kind of missed the point. Um, But... Yeah, so I came in, I kind of had some of those misgivings about, you know, what is AA and it seems to be for people that are older than me and, you know, if I haven't just come out of jail, do I really need to be here and, um, you know, maybe things aren't bad enough. Um, I did hear mention at that time of AA being a progressive disease, but I don't think I fully appreciated what that meant. I don't think I understood that by progressive disease... The likelihood is, if you are an alcoholic, that if you continue to drink, there's a pretty high likelihood that things are going to get progressively worse for you. Um, Things also tend to get progressively better in your life if you take alcohol out of it, if you're an alcoholic. So that, that, that kind of, the nature of the progressive disease language, it took me a while to click to that. Um... So, yeah, I came in, I was in my late 20s, I didn't like it, so I left. Um, And then my drinking got darker, and it just continued to get darker and take on stranger and stranger forms. Um, And I continue to have to, like, have these kind of various mitigators around the place of um, little tricks of the trade that we employ to disguise the worst of our drinking or to make, you know, work possible so like one of the things I used to do was um you know I'd be I'd go to work hungover but if I could if I could head in and have a swim at a public pool before going to work that would buy me some hours because then I'd arrive at work maybe with red eyes that I could attribute to the chlorine and I'd also (laughs) smell like chlorine rather than alcohol things like that were were like you know and, and I'd also get this oh you're so good for having a swim before work you know like these weird weird um yeah just the little kind of tricks of the trade I'd have you know I'd bike a lot because I was drunk 
and it's easier to to bike from A to B to home to you know than it is to drink drive. So I had these quite shitty accidents in the last couple of years of my drinking where I would like you know stuff my knee or my ankle or my wrist because I was really pissed. To the outside observer, it would look like, you know, here's just a woman, you know, in her 30s, you know, biking home after a couple of pints at the pub. There's nothing, you know, that wrong with that. Whereas in actual fact, like, that's not, yeah, it wasn't what it looked like at all. It was the inability to, like... I couldn't. I didn't trust myself owning a car anymore. Was frankly what it was about, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I came in. I'm 42 now. I came in six years ago, and the the program for me is a very remains. It you know we talk about it as as a spiritual program, and it absolutely is. But for me, fundamentally, when I came in, it was a very pragmatic solution to the number of issues that had built up in my life and um, I was getting very, very worried about the physical dependence that I had built up on alcohol Um, and I hadn't moved into the kind of the DT's territory but I needed to drink every day and that had been the case for years and that was causing me to have to isolate from a whole variety of different situations because it's really hard. It's kind of similar to... This may be a bad analogy, but if you understand this territory, you understand what I'm saying. It's similar to, say, an eating disorder like anorexia where you're having to manage every kind of part of your day around um, your obsession with food. (laughs) You know, like we, in my case, I had to manage every area of my life around my obsession with alcohol that was by that point years deep. Um, And... So what I was looking for, as much as I hadn't liked AA in my 20s, I was looking for a program that that said that abstinence was possible and I knew that that was the heart of AA, that, that AA offered a, a solution where abstinence was, um, abstinence was, was possible, you know. Um, and for me, I'd been trying to cut out drinking so many different times, so many different ways for various, you know, I could go six months even at one point in my 30s. So when I hit a six-month abstinence, I was like, shit, awesome, that's cool, I never need AA, (laughs) you know. Um, During that six-month period, I had been hoarding alcohol in a secret area of my house um, in the full knowledge that the six months would come to an end and then I'd get to celebrate solo. Um... So it was, yeah, it was it was an extreme relief to come into AA properly and fully and get to you know a number of meetings. Wellington is so awesome in the in the respect that we have heaps and heaps of meetings that we can get to, and I made use of that and got around them. I should probably start going to a few more since lockdown last year. I've been a bit more, um, I don't know. Yeah, I need to I need to kind of get back out there a bit. But um but what have I got to say? I think I was about two or three years into the program where someone kind of spot talked me through the spiritual experience, which is the the end part of what Rebecca um read out. And that for me is a really important part of the book because as much as it's kind of wordy and there's gendered language and you know, righty righty rah, fundamentally to me what it says is 
this is a spiritual program that may not happen, um, you know, like a bolt out of the blue, and it may not happen how you want it to, and it may not happen in the way it happens for others, but fundamentally it will slowly emerge and it will um, it will be, you know, the thing that, that, that kind of that keeps you afloat. Um, and for me, that that has been that has been the case. That I didn't have a spiritual life or necessarily even a higher power three years ago. And you know, I'm in a territory now, six years in, where I'm kind of feeling much more. Um, um, much more on the way in that area <laughs> and that for me is you know it may have taken me you know um a while and it will continue to take me more time but um yeah yeah I, lo- I really love that passage at the end in a way that um at the beginning it definitely challenged my thinking so yeah thanks thanks everyone thanks Rebecca thanks Victoria and I'll leave it there Thanks, Josephine. Um, so just a reminder, you're listening to Wellington Access Radio. Uh, that's 106.1 FM. Um, and this is the Wellington Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air. Um, if you're someone you know is, is, is you know, wanting to reach out to AA, um, then you can, oh, and you live in New Zealand, um, then you can go to our website, alcoholicsanonymous.org.nz, um, and there is a number that is manned 24 hours a day, which is 0800 AA Works, 0800 229 675. So you can find that and other resources on the website. Um, you can also find on the website meetings. Um, so there's an awesome tool where you can put in what um, city you're in, well, what your location is, what day it is, um, and then it'll come up with a map of um, all the different meetings uh, in that area. Um, and yeah, if you, I know we have a few people listening from overseas. Um, so I think probably a Google search is the best way to go for that. Um, and if you are enjoying listening to this, um, recorded meeting, um, and you want to listen to more, I think the best place to go is the Wellington Access Radio website. Um, cause they've got every single recording. Um, there are some meetings up on, uh, the AA website, but we just, we just don't have um, all of them up on there. Right. Um, so I guess it's my turn. Um, <laughs> uh, kia ora, I'm Victoria. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Victoria. Um, yeah, when I kind of think about what it was like and, and, you know, what happened and, um, what it's like now, I always kind of talk about how the first time I had a drink, it wasn't normal from the start. Like I didn't, you know, have a beer at a family thing or have a sip at my first party. I was at home alone um, and I had people coming over and I'd kind of moved out of my weird phase. I could always been very weird and unpopular as a kid um, and kind of into my preteens as well. Um, and then I'd gone to high school um, and then I'd kind of made friends with cool people and I was just waiting to be found out. You know, that's how I felt. I just felt like soon they're going to realize that I don't belong anywhere and they're not going to want to be friends with me anymore. Um, so I was expecting them to come over and I was really nervous and I went I don't know why, but I went into the cupboard and I got a cup, like a glass, um, and I got a cup of vodka and just drank it straight. Um, I don't know what possessed me to do that. I, you know, my parents don't drink heavily. I I didn't grow up with any alcoholics. Um, Both my grandfathers are alcoholic, but I didn't really have them around growing up. Um, And I'll never forget just the warm spreading feeling that I got from that first drink. Um, and then I just wanted to chase that, you know, I just chased that for the next 
few years relentlessly, you know, anything that got in the way of drinking, I'd, I'd get rid of it. And I, I was kind of thinking about that. And I realized that today I can get not the exact same feeling, but I can get that feeling from things that aren't alcohol. And I wish someone had said that. I'm sure they have. You know, I've been to so many meetings over the years. But, you know, that was what I needed to hear. I needed to hear that you can get happiness. You can get an ease of comfort and belonging, you know. Um, you can, you know, be cheered up or feel good or feel relaxed or feel relieved um, without drinking, you know, because I knew that I could be sober, but it was pretty miserable, um, you know, it, towards the end of my drinking, I could only go three week, three weeks without alcohol. And it wasn't until I went to rehab and said, well, I sometimes go three weeks without alcohol. And they said, so what did you use? And I went, oh, yeah, no, I did use drugs. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I didn't have any sober time up since I, you know, had taken my first drink at 15 because um, I always had to be on something, um, always. Um, and so I knew that sobriety was just like this very painful shit phase in between drinking or using. Um, so I didn't really, so I didn't want to get sober. Um, but the problem was my drinking progressed pretty fast. You know, sometimes I joke that I don't do things by halves and I'm very motivated. So I kind of got to the same place at 20 that a lot of people get to like in in their forties or fifties. Um, I went to treatment. You don't need to go to treatment necessarily to get sober or to come to meetings, but that was just what ended up happening for me. I kind of just got to a place where I just literally could not keep myself alive. Like either, you know, if I wasn't drinking and using, I was so depressed and just crazy that, you know, I'd I'd try to hurt myself. And then if I was drinking and using, I was getting into increasingly dangerous situations um, or overdosing or, you know, it was just like, I just couldn't keep myself alive. and, And that was kind of um, the point at which, you know, my psychiatrist kind of sat my parents down. I was still very young. I was 20 um, and said, hey, you know, she just needs to go somewhere because she just, you know, she's just not safe. Um, so I went to a place down south that's it's like a inpatient mental health hospital, but it's got an addictions program and an eating disorder program. So um, that's where I went. And funnily enough, I was um, 12th stepped by an alcoholic who had never been in recovery and wasn't there for recovery either. She was there for other reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I was I was there for, for the addictions program and I just couldn't accept that I was an alcoholic. And, you know, I just had all the reasons of, um, you know, I, I kind of bought into um, that thing of, oh, my life is really effed up. So once my life isn't effed up, I won't have to drink, you know? And of course, later on, people were like, well, did you ever drink when things were good and you were happy? And I was like, oh, oh yeah, I did, <laughs> you know, kind of deflated, like, oh God, you know, this is a constant in my life that's not going to go away. Um, but yeah, there was this woman there and um, she was in her 50s and she looked like an alcoholic to me, you know, she was a bit jaundiced and her eyes were all strange and, you know, her life was pretty bad. Um and it wasn't until I was I was talking about my drinking and saying how I don't think it's that bad and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said, oh, yeah, I drank like that when I was 19 or 20. And she told me some stories. And that's when my heart sank because I realized, oh, you know, and we talk about it in AA, but I realized it kind of on my own. This is a progressive disease. I'm not meant to be like a guy, yeah, like a guy in his 50s drinking under a bridge. Like that's not what drinking alcoholism looks like when you're 20 for most people, you know. Um, and it's so funny. I thought I, you know, when I read the big book, I thought I had a high bottom. Um, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I was getting the cops called on me. I was, I was dropping out. I was getting fired. I was getting kicked out of flats. You know, I was 
you know, kept putting, you know, I kept nearly dying. You know, that's not a very high bottom. That's a pretty low bottom to me. Um, and, you know, something that I didn't know would be addressed by getting into recovery and working the program of, you know, of Alcoholics Anonymous was that um, it wasn't just my drinking that was a problem. It was that um, I was unable to lead like a true life. Like I was unable to, you know, I was so miserable when I was at university um, as a young person because I was just living this double life. And it wasn't just to hide my drinking. It was that I just didn't know how to live properly. Um, I remember wanting to be a good person. Like I just was obsessed with this idea of being a, a good person. And I literally couldn't figure out how to do it. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I was raised really well. You know, my nan raised us and, and my parents were, you know, really into like values and stuff. Um, but I just felt like, so I knew I had a compass in my back pocket, but I'd somehow broken it and I could not figure out how to have like good relationships. Like I couldn't figure it out. I would always do something to mess up. And then I just became a person who, when I started any kind of relationship, like friendship, one with family, you know, romantic relationship, I was just waiting for me to mess up. So then it's like, why even try? So I kind of just turned into a person that was a real nightmare and really bad with people um, because I just knew it wasn't, I knew I would be found out. Um, and, you know, I was living a pretty miserable, you know, life because I, I was, you know, like I knew I was a lesbian, but I was in the closet and, you know, I, I knew that my family would be very disappointed that I was kind of posing as Pakia, you know, because I'm white. So I just, I just, when I moved to Dunedin, like I kind of come out to my friends at home and, you know, I was always like active with my family and stuff and, that was kind of the expectation of I'd be active in the community when, but as soon as I moved to Dunedin, I just never came out to anyone and, and I never told anyone I was Māori. So I just was in this like weird closet about, you know, like who I actually was. And I was studying something that I had no interest in, but I was doing it because it looked good, you know, or like I'd, you know, have like the very athletic popular boyfriend because it looked good. You know, my life was all about optics because I was scared and I didn't know how to live a true life. And I think, um, you know, when I, went down and started uni, my, my drinking just took off, you know, like I was already drinking alcoholically from the beginning. Um, but it just took off because I needed to be drunk to live that life. Like in order to live a really dishonest life, um, I needed to be drunk. Like I couldn't be sober for it. It was too painful. It was too painful to be sober. Um, and it was too painful to, talk to my family, you know, like I just, I'm so close with them now, but I can't imagine not talking to them for months, but that's what I did. And it wasn't just the drinking. It was shame. I was just so ashamed of how I was living. Um, and I didn't know that any of that would be solved by the program. You know, the only thing that I knew when I came to AA was that I couldn't go back to drinking and using, but I also couldn't continue how I was. Cause I just, I was just like suicidal. I, I didn't know how to, live um my family were kind of horrified that they kind of thought, thought rehab would fix me and when I came back from rehab my behavior was worse than ever you know and the way I describe it is I was just living life without anesthetic you know it's like I still had none of the tools I needed to live life um and then on top of that I had nothing to take the pain away so yeah my behavior was was kind of just as bad and um, I'm very dramatic, so it takes a lot for me to come in. Um, but someone I knew killed themselves from from rehab, and 
that's when I knew things had to change. Um, and like I said, you know, by doing the program today, I do have good relationships with people. Um, today, I can lead an honest life. You know, I know who I am and um, I'm able to kind of live that. And, you know, it's so much more than just not drinking. You know, it's you get to have a new life. You don't get your, you know, they say you don't get your old life scrubbed up new. You actually get a new one. Um, so we'll just finish there today because we're actually um, running out of time. So congrats to us for filling it. <laughs> um, so I, I'll just ask you guys to join me in closing with the serenity prayer. God, God, grant, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.